will global banking regulation shape up after COVID-19? Welcome to Global Risk Regulators podcast series about banking and financial regulation. For more about GRR, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. In this episode, we are discussing how the regulatory landscape might evolve once the pandemic has passed. Regulators have already taken a series of measures, such as delaying some regulatory implementation deadlines, temporarily loosening some capital standards, and relaxing some reporting requirements for banks so they can focus on supporting businesses and households. The question is, do these changes set a new trend or will they just be temporary? To help shed some light on these questions, I am delighted to welcome David Strachan, the head of EMEA's Centre for Regulatory Strategy at Deloitte, and I also have the great pleasure in welcoming Michael McKee, who is a partner at DLA Piper. Okay, I'll start uh, with you, Michael. Um, Okay, so do you think that the economic fallout from COVID-19 poses a threat to global financial regulation, making jurisdictions more likely to pursue their own solutions, such as more easing of capital ratios and delaying the implementation of timetables for longer, basically leading to a long-term fragmentation of global rules? And what's your, what's your view on that? Uh, well, I think I, I would look at the impact of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic as sort of covering three big areas. Um, one is delay, as you mentioned. Yeah. Second is dividends, and the third is default and um, the implications of default for for capital. Um, I, I definitely on the delay front, I, I, the, clearly most countries, in fact, uh, well, the Basel Committee itself has has proposed delay of most things by a further year. Yeah. Uh, and if you have delay, that gives shall we say, more scope, more time potentially for more differences to arise. So that's number one. Um, Dividends, I think, uh, is not so much an issue for the Basel Accord itself, but obviously one of the implications of the pandemic has been that regulators have gone round um, strong-arming banks and telling them that if they're going to be uh, getting various relief on their capital, um, they can't pay out dividends to shareholders during that period. So I think that is a, a, a sort of a significant issue, although not maybe one we need to talk about so much today. And the third is default, which I think is a very big issue, which is with, with all of these um, uh, you know, uh, payment deferrals and uh, various other steps taken, uh, how do you tell what you might call the... Uh, uh, the bad loans that were always bad loans from uh, the uh, the loans that are just um, going to have temp- or the the borrowers that are just going to have temporary issues. So I think default is a very big issue. Um, okay. Does it mean long term fragmentation? I think it will mean increased tension, which may or may not result in long term fragmentation. So those would be my points. Okay, fine. Oh, well, thanks for that. Well, uh, and David, what's your uh, what's your view on the sort of fragmentation theme? So on, on on that theme, I mean, I, ha- I think we have to recognise that in some respects the global regulatory community isn't starting from the the best position. I, mean, I think we're well past the peak of post 2008 financial crisis regulatory convergence, 
Yeah. That's an important backdrop. And as, I mean, as Michael says, consequences of COVID-19 could compound that. But I think the question, the real question is, how likely is the threat that you mentioned, Justin, uh, to become a reality? And there, I think it's a wee bit too early to tell. Uh, on the positive front, we've seen the Basel Committee, as Michael said, pushing back the implementation deadline uh, for Basel 3.1 by year, and that's helpful. Uh, it also was the first, I think, to advocate allowing greater use of the transitional provisions um, in relation to expected credit loss arising from IFRS 9, which is also positive, so you're taking the lead there. But on the other hand, I mean, almost, well, pretty much all the regulatory flexibility and forbearance measures have been taken at either national or EU level. Um, by definition, all the government support schemes have been national. And um, I think there's a risk that that may encourage a bit of what's often referred to as home bias. So, uh, you know, banks lending into their domestic markets more than cross-border. And then lastly, um, you know, if countries are concerned about long and complex supply chains and dependencies on other countries for sort of critical goods and services, then I think some of that thinking could certainly rub off onto um, financial services regulation. So um, I, I think Michael put it quite nicely that there are sort of some tensions on the horizon that are probably going to get bigger. Right. Okay. Um, David, let me stick with you a bit longer. Let's unpack this a little bit. Um, and, and let's talk maybe about developments within individual jurisdictions. Um, so let's start with the US. Now, as we all know, under the Trump administration, they have been doing a deregulatory agenda. Uh, for instance, they've been making reforms to the Volcker Rule. More recently, they decided to temporarily exclude bank holdings of US Treasuries and bank deposits at the Federal Reserve from the supplementary leverage ratio. Now, some people I've been speaking to, um, they, they've suggested that this could become permanent, uh, which I believe would contravene Basel rules. So, I mean, do you expect further temporary or even permanent divergences from what other jurisdictions are doing? And, and I know this is complicated a bit by an, uh, an, an election this year as well. But you know, what's your view on that? So, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, again, as I much as I did in the last one, I think uh, it's important to think about the context, in particular the context for deregulation. Um, I think a number of uh, commentators and, and regulators in the US might argue that the regulators there have actually gone well beyond what was strictly required of them um, by Basel and by the Financial Stability Board. So then if you accept that, then their deal regulation is actually starting from a, a higher base than you might find in some other countries. But, uh, and I think your, your point you make about the leverage ratio is, um, uh, is, a, is a nice one because, I mean, the US has had a, a binding leverage ratio for a number of years now. Whereas the European Union, on the other hand, hasn't yet introduced one in binding form. Um, that's going to take effect, I think, next June in the European Union uh, against a Basel Committee 
deadline of January 2018. So if you take those two situations, I mean, we could spend quite a lot of time uh, discussing which is more divergent. Right, 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 right there. But I mean, going back to your question, uh, I've certainly spoken to uh, quite a few people in, in the US. And again, while it's possible that that temporary measure might become permanent, um, I don't think they see any reason to believe that that's going to become um, permanent, at least now, at least not as they see the outlook um, right right now. Okay, fine. Uh, um, you know, uh, what's, your, what's your view on the US situation, Michael? Um, well, the first thing is that I would agree with what David says, that in certain aspects, the US is uh, imposing, shall we say, higher thresholds than Basel itself requires. Um, and um, in that regard, I think it's a fair point that even if they diverge to some degree um, in certain other respects, and, and as David says, that's not absolutely guaranteed. Um, broadly speaking, one would expect that the overall outcome would be that um, the U.S. will be, broadly speaking, still in line with Basel III uh, and would be, generally speaking, um, uh, even if they deregulate, um, probably not deregulating to a point below what you might call the, the baseline for Basel III. So that's point one. Um, yeah. The second point I'd make, and I think this is a more general point, but is relevant perhaps to what we'll discuss later on as well about other areas yeah. is that nobody really implements Basel III exactly as agreed. Uh, every country, or in the EU's case, every uh, sort of uh, uh, set of countries uh, imp uh, implements typically on a national basis. And every time that happens, politics comes into play. Often the biggest changes you get in terms of implementation are dictated more by, shall we say, the politics of the day. You know, a good example of that is that when CRR came in, uh, Basel uh, bankers' bonuses, a provision in relation to that, was introduced, which of course was not required by Basel III, but um, was a political concern in the context of you know, the post-financial um, crisis of 2008, 2009. Yeah. So the same thing happens in the US when they seek to implement Basel III. It will be partly uh, dependent on the politics uh, in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, well, Michael, can I take you over to the EU now? Um, so as, as we know, they rely... European economies rely heavily on banks to support the economy, uh, much more so than the US. They also want to place a Green Deal at the centre of economic recovery, which will undoubtedly involve banks. Um, we also know that they don't like some Basel measures, uh, such as the output floor on internal models. They also hold numerous exceptions to Basel rules. So um, where might... EU regulators be tempted to diverge further from the Basel framework in pursuit of their economic goals? And I guess a lot of that also depends what happens to economic recovery. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. I mean, I think the first thing is that at the minute, of course, 
the EU's primary focus in this area is actually on the CRR amendments proposal that is going through uh, the Parliament and the Council as we speak. Um, And that is very much focused on the facilitation of lending by the uh, credit institutions into the EU economy. So that's where their focus is at the minute. And um, one would expect, uh, particularly given that it looks like the EU economy's most hit by um, coronavirus will be places like Spain, France and Italy, that there will be political pressure both by some governments, by various MEPs, but also by banks, um, maybe not just in those countries, but particularly in those countries for some aspects of relief from some of the requirements of Basel III. So um, now whether that actually translates into actually, for example, changing uh, aspects of the output floor is another matter. Uh, I think I think what is more likely to be negotiated uh, is, uh, say, delay as to as to the phasing in of the output floor and things like that. And and obviously, Basel itself has already pushed back the phasing in of that by by a further year. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's certainly an area where, on the one hand, the issue will be: do they do something other than the output floor? My my guess is possibly not because that is such a key component of of Basel three. It's more likely, I suspect, to be something around, uh, shall we say, a a certain amount of supervisory flexibility in in some aspects of of how the internal models are are operating. But we'll we'll see about that. The other area, as you say, is uh, what I might call green finance. So the EU is very, very keen, obviously, to encourage green finance, and they're also keen potentially to give um, preferential treatment, shall we say, to certain types of green assets finance, which might include um, lighter capital weightings if, for, for certain types of product. Um, so that's an area where um, we might see developments, it seems to me, um, but that partly is itself dependent on the work that is going on again at the minute in Brussels in relation to developing the framework for green finance and uh, whether or not, for example, those sorts of uh, um, advantages for certain green products are built into that framework. Yeah, no, indeed. Okay, <clears throat> and, and David, what, what, what's your what, what's your view on the sort of EU situation? So I think that there's probably two types of divergence in in broad terms. One is divergence on timing of implementation and the one uh, on the substance of implementation. On timing, um, I I think the Basel Committee has helped in terms of delaying its implementation date by 12 months. I mean, our our own view has always been that um, the, the EU had very little chance of hitting the January 2022 deadline. It's still going to be tight um, for the 1st of January 2023, in our view, um, but it's much more possible. 
Um, so that's timing. On the substance, Michael's covered the output floor um, uh, very clearly. I mean, I think one other area I would um, uh, just look at, uh, watch carefully, is um, treatment of unrated corporates, where, um, in some respects, the, the new um, uh, standardised approach and other approaches have got um, uh, some more... Um, uh, some tougher treatments of unrated corporates and given what's happening now to corporates in particular small and medium-sized enterprises um, uh, will they be inclined to see if they could find a way of smoothing uh, that impact I think that's that's one to watch I mean the other area which is quite topical is um, around the Capital Markets Union and um, the uh, high-level forum set up to advise the Commission on the Capital Markets Union Phase 2 reported yesterday um, or earlier this week. And there, it, uh, they're uh, advocating that the Commission looks at changes to uh, the capital treatment which would um, uh, enable it or make it easier for banks to um, make markets hold inventory of securities and also to think very carefully about the treatment of banks holdings of equities particularly long-term equities so i think you may find that um, there is a the coming together of the um, cmu and the uh, european union's implementation of basel three gives the european union an opportunity to some, look at some of these specifics yeah, no, it's uh, in, in, interesting points actually, and and maybe David, if I can now switch you over to Brexit. I know mean, you've given a lot of thought about it. I know Michael has as well. You've been advising clients. You've all been thinking a lot about this. Um, so, you know, what direction do you think UK regulators might take? And you know, let's put this in the context. You know, the dreadful impact of COVID nineteen. You know, GDP was reported to have fallen. 20% in April is an absolutely shocking number. Um, in, in light of all this, is there a chance now that the UK government might, after all, pursue a deregulatory approach to help spur growth? So, uh, as of today, I mean, it seems to me that the, the UK regulatory stance is, is clear, um, uh, which is, you know, had the PRA and the Financial Policy Committee not implemented the robust capital and liquidity standards that were introduced after the last crisis so rigorously and robustly then the uk banking system wouldn't be able to withstand and respond to the current situation in the very proactive way that it's doing and i mean my sense is that um left their own devices the bank of england pra would would want to implement global standards um, faithfully and consistently and tailor them to um, what the UK uh, needs. Uh, having said that, I think they'll do that sensitively. And you know, we have seen in the measures that the UK regulators have already taken um, in the last few months that um, they do not want um, capital regulation to be cyclical and um, stand in the way of lending to the real real economy. But um, so they are sensitive to that. But I think their um, uh, adherence to global standards seems to me to be um, pretty pretty loud and clear. And I mean, there's an, a 
again, there's an interesting case in point at the moment, uh, which is the Michael mentioned that what's often referred to as the quick fix package um, for CRR2, where the European Union has moved very quickly to um, introduce a series of measures to amend um, capital requirements, one of which is a, is a, 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 a less draconian treatment of banks' investments in software assets. Um, yeah. a, a, te yeah. a technical issue, but it's an important it, it's an important issue. Um, where you know the Bank of England, uh, um, Sam Woods, the deputy governor of the, uh, for the PRA, said a couple of months ago that that was one area where you know the the, the PRA um, had in previous discussions taken a different view. You know, yeah. He said that they lost that argument in the EU twenty eight. Um, setting and clearly, uh, I think the UK regulators are now going to face a question: um, you know, Do we j go with the EU, um, or do we um, stick with um, our sort of instincts on that one? We'll, we'll have to wait to wait and see. I mean, just to round off, um, I mean, where the government comes out on this, um, I think we really on that one we wait and see what the consultation on the financial services which we're expecting later this year has to say but clearly they set the overall direction and framework for the regulators okay well michael what, what's your take on uh, the uk post eu post covid19 in terms of its regulatory structure um yeah what i what i think um really just Picking up what David's saying is the f the first thing is to your point on on GDP and the drop in it and what the government might do. I think uh, you know the Chancellor spoke to the 1922 committee uh, earlier this week, and uh, the reports on that that I've read from the Times, for example, indicate that he, he's certainly putting together a package of of changes to boost the economy uh, in the in the sort of coming out of COVID context. But I don't get the sense that that includes specific changes to the course of regulation. Mm -hmm. And indeed, just as uh, David said, I think that actually the current UK position of the regulators is pretty clear. And the best way to, to, to see that is if you look at what the PRA published in uh, March and then more recently in June in terms of guidance on the approach the banks should be taking to uh, expected credit loss and uh, you know uh, payment deferrals and such like in the current crisis so there are two big points on that the first thing is they made it clear in you know in, in Sam Woods covering letter that that had been done by taking into account uh, the Basel committee and in dialogue with the Basel committee it had also been taken into taking into account the um, EU position and uh, the position of the EBA and their guidance. Um, uh, not, uh, and, and that all of that guidance has been put out by the PRA is clearly intended to be consistent both with the Basel Accord and how that is developing uh, with IFRS nine and uh, certainly for the present. Uh, with um, CRR and the other thing that is mentioned there is the EBA pathway which of course runs on 
for several years beyond the period point at which we in the UK will be part of the EU. So I think the current unlikely course of action in relation to capital for the UK for the next few years is to keep on keeping on, certainly in line with current CRR and in line with uh, Basel III. Yeah. Okay, fine. Okay, well, um, Michael, maybe I can um, get you to, 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 to sort of um, give your views on this one. Um, you know, with the, I mean, there are certainly some divergences going on. I mean, everyone is kind of looking looking after their own jurisdictions, as they were, because we're all in a sort of economic crisis or lockdown and trying to get out of that. You know, do you think there's a threat that the Basel framework, you know, could could eventually un unravel as a result of as a result of all of this? Um. There's no doubt tensions are going to be created. We, we, uh, I think David and I both agreed on that earlier on. Mm. Uh, and and that, those are more likely to be political tensions, it seems to me, rather than regulatory tensions. Yeah. But the political tensions tend to affect the regulatory position because ultimately the regulators have to conform to whatever is the political uh, policy line within their own jurisdiction even if they have a degree of, uh, of independence from the, the politicians. Um, however, I think you've got to look at this in the context of the development of the Basel Accord over many years. You know, we're now at Basel III. If you, if you go from Basel I to Basel II to Basel III, in each iteration, you've had a more detailed, uh, a, a, a more complex, but at the same time, uh, a, a, an improved, shall we say, um, Basel Accord um, as the outcome. There yeah. are always difficulties yeah. with implementation and nobody does implement it, or very few, exactly as the Accord requires. The key issue is whether the degree of divergence when it comes to implementation is so excessive that, as you suggest, you know, it, 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 it could result in an effective breakup of, of the way uh, the Accord operates. Yeah. Um, I personally think that central banks, who, who generally speaking are the, shall we say, the guardians of the Basel Accord, are actually themselves keen for it to continue to work effectively for the future. And therefore, if there is a fundamental problem, it will be at the political level. It will be because global politics itself becomes so charged and so difficult. Yeah. That then it is not possible to continue with what is, you know, actually, if you think about it, you know, the Basel Accord operates better than the United Nations for the moment. That's very true, actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and David, do you think the Basel Accords are in danger at all? So I think there will be a role um, in future for a, for a global bank capital framework. Uh, for the uh, for many of the reasons that Michael gives, and uh, and also as a sort of benchmark for for, na for national uh, regimes, uh, you, we should remember that the the IMF, when it does the uh, financial system assessment programs, uses the the, the Basel framework as a benchmark um, against which to score national regimes. But having said that, I, mean, I think we do see sustained and substantive divergence. Over a period of time, then uh, it's, I mean, 
I don't think there's any doubt that the authority of the the framework would would, would certainly be be eroded. But we're I don't think we're anywhere near that point um, uh, point yet. Um, so I mean, that, no, that, let me stop there. That's that's my quick take on it. Right. Okay. Uh, okay, Michael, if I could come back to you. Um, so you know, let's try and end this on a on an upbeat note, so to speak. Um, so, you know, if jurisdictions are to find common cause once again, trying to align their regulatory policies, um, what do you think needs to happen or what could happen to drive that, to drive a sort of reconvergence? I think I think the key thing is, uh, in some respects, is to keep doing what they're doing, which is, in, in, in the context, of the Basel Committee. There is a continual and ongoing dialogue and process. And um, each time a new Basel Accord is agreed, then the big issue is how in practice do you implement that? And there's, there's a very close interrelationship here, not just with, with, with the general capital framework under Basel, but in certain respects with international financial reporting standards or equivalents, you know, the standards like US GAAP and such like. Yeah. Um, so so the, the, the other element here is finding ways to ensure that when you implement, you do those in practical and sensible ways. So if we go back to what I mentioned, for example, about the PRA guidance, that, um, for example, is, I, I think is very helpful in, in working through uh, some of the concepts, for example, in IFRS 9 on um, expected credit loss and significant increase in credit risk, mm. and how you know when, when for example, you trigger uh, a move uh, from treating a loan as as performing, as it were, and therefore in stage one, and then moving it up into the higher, more difficult stage of stage two, where you you basically say there is a significant increase in credit risk, and then stage three, where you're more or less saying it's on, in default. Now, they they therefore look at you know the the, the new schemes uh, in a UK government context, but this could be equally potentially applicable, for example, to European schemes. And they say, well, the mere fact that you give uh, your know, payment holidays or in or or additional credits uh, under these schemes should not in itself trigger a view that there is therefore a significant increase in credit risk. So there's some very thoughtful and sensible guidance that should assist banks. But but if you look at that, that is also part of working through the process of implementing both IFRS 9 and aspects of Basel 3 and the new uh, definition of default. Uh, so that sort of dialogue, that working together, that continually looking at issues, and if necessary, in a Basel situation, from time to time, adjusting them. Um, that has to continue. And I think, therefore, there is a continuing massive role for the, 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 the banking regulators and the, and the banks, actually, as well, to continue a strong dialogue, whatever the political environment they find themselves working on, even if it's uh, quite a tense one. Okay, lovely. And, and uh, David, what, what do you... What do you in your view, could maybe drive a, a reconvergence, um, you know, a, a, around regulation around the world. You... So, um, 
Justin, I'll give you um, a couple of couple of variations. Um, I'll give you a pessimistic um, outlook, and I'll give you a, a, a an end and a more optimistic note. Mm -hmm. So I think what might bring them uh, to get back together if we take the the sort of pessimistic path. So I think there. I mean, if we find ourselves continuing down the fragmentation route, by which I mean sort of national policy, national ring fencing of capital and liquidity, or of operations and data, then in it may well require a significant event where fragmentation is either a contributor to the whatever caused that event. Um, for example, liquidity or capital couldn't move to where it was needed because it was trapped by a national regulator, or indeed where the impact of the event made a lot worse. Um, you know, there's just more destruction of economic value uh, than it otherwise would have been the case. Then I think that sort of shock might actually cause um, some national regulators to think. Uh, this is not the right way to go. So that's so that's just the shock channel. But I think there's also uh, a, an opportunities channel, which is that there is. A, I think there is a growing recognition, notwithstanding the political tensions that Michael mentions, that actually there are some enormous issues that would be better dealt with globally today. Mm -hmm. uh, and on my list, I'd have climate. Um, risk where the the network the greening of the financial system is you know, very active. Yeah. There's operational resilience, uh, which clearly after what we've experienced over the last few months is very critical, um, in, uh, increasingly important. And um, and stable coins. You know, you, 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 we saw um, uh, last year how quickly the regulatory community came together um, when it uh, was responding to the proposals by the Libra Association. So I think it is possible that um, there are some cross-cutting global issues which the, the regulatory community will tackle on a global basis. And even so, um, for the reasons we've been talking uh, about, some issues such as bank capital are going to remain quite tricky um, over the uh, coming months and years. Okay, that that's brilliant. Okay. And on that note, I'd like to thank Michael and David for taking part in Global Risk Regulators' Regulatory Podcast Series. And if you'd like to listen to more regulatory podcasts, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. And you can also subscribe via ACAST, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'd like to wish everyone listening to stay safe and well. Thank you. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 